0: So today for many of you, not all of you, is a day of really beginning to settle in. And it is actually uh, critically important how we begin retreats, the attitude we bring, uh, the intentions that we bring, the dedication that we bring. In many ways, these first days set the tone for all the days that follow. So wonderful line that says, if you want to know about your past, look at your mind now. And if you want to know about your future, look at your mind now. And the emphasis in that is really to acknowledge that it is the mind of now, that is really the parent, the mother, the father of all the moments, the tomorrows, the next moments that come. And it's really within the mind of now, how we are in this moment, that we establish the intentions and the attitudes that are truly conducive to our well-being and to our practice. Now this morning I really want to talk about cultivating the collected mind, Because that is always our first invitation and our first challenge in practice is to cultivate a collected mind. And it is an invitation that, quite frankly, continues through our practice and through our life. It is not as if we somehow achieve a collected mind and it remains impervious to change or to conditions. It's always our invitation in our practice is how to cultivate in this moment a mind that is collected. But it's also important to acknowledge that the collected mind takes place within a wider context of understanding. When the Buddha talked about this path, he really spoke about it in four dimensions. The first dimension is dana or generosity. The second dimension is sila, or ethics, integrity. The third dimension is samādhi, the collected mind. And the fourth dimension is pāṇya. Now these four dimensions are always interwoven. It's not as if we have a menu. And we can just select one aspect of the path. Oh, I'll do samadhi, but you know, I'm really not that interested in ethics. You know I'm not that interested in generosity. Or wis- I'll just choose wisdom, but I'm not interested in the others. These four of dana, sila, samadhi, and panya are always interwoven. And they form a path that embraces the whole of our life, not just our inner life. But acknowledges that we are relational beings, and that any path which is truly liberating also needs to acknowledge that relational aspect, the way that we are informing and being informed by our world moment to moment. Now, the collected mind, it's, it's at these four, like the, the four limbs of our body our two arms, our two legs. this morning I'd like to focus more on the element of samadhi, on on collectedness, but with the understanding that the mind of calmness, the undistracted mind, the mindful mind, doesn't arise in a vacuum. It doesn't arise in a void. The collected mind, or a mind of calmness, like all things, is born of conditions, and it emerges and deepens when the nourishment for that deepening and emergence is offered. Now, generosity and ethics are obviously very key ingredients. They are almost like the groundwork, the foundations upon which a collected mind grows. So the Dhamma aspect, the generosity. Now this is not just about material generosity. It is an attitude of mind generosity that is actually very critical to how we are present on a retreat with others and with ourselves. We live together in fairly close community when we're on a retreat. And so our our own mind is constantly being mirrored in the reactions that we have to other people on the retreat. Our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, our agendas. It's very important to acknowledge this. Although we, we practice alone in many ways, we practice alone with others. And it's important to acknowledge and just mark that, those that relational aspect. Because we see on a retreat, just as we see in our life, but perhaps we see it more poignantly in a retreat, How easy it is, for example, to be irritated or judgmental. How people act, how they don't act. How they should act is a big one. That people should be a certain way. This is a kind of microcosmic view of what happens so much in our life, of how others should be, how we should be. So it is within this, that we learn, actually, the lessons of dana or generosity. We learn to be generous with tolerance, with forbearance, with forgiveness. Applying that not only outwardly, but also inwardly. It doesn't take people very long in practice for for many to discover how remarkably harsh the mind can be inwardly towards ourselves with judgment, with blame, with demand. And in terms of cultivating a collected mind, a mind of calmness, generosity inwardly and outwardly here is really key. We learn to be generous with ourselves, finding our willingness to begin again. But generosity also is a factor in actually how we approach the practice. How generous are we with our attention, with our mindfulness? How generous are we being really willing to include everything within the field of our mindfulness? Generous with our commitment. One of the curious things I, I find over many years of teaching on retreats and Actually, I was a little surprised to discover this at first, is is how easy it is for many people to have kind of parallel agendas, parallel schedules on a retreat. You know, you can see the schedule that's offered is this really this invitation to a sustained and seamless practice. And yet even before and I'm not saying anybody here, of course, I'm sure none of you are doing this, but even before people come on retreats, they can already set their parallel agenda. You know, well, that schedule's really great, but, you know, I really need this time for, you know, my run or my bike ride or, you know, my, my whatever, you know, my, my letter writing or my this. And, and this parallel agenda sitting alongside this seamless mindfulness and it's really interesting to see what that does to the mind, how it always puts the mind into this state of negotiation or argument or, you know, endlessly figuring things out. Generosity with our attention, with our mindfulness, really means in many ways taking a risk. It means making a leap finding the willingness just to put down all the parallel schedules, agendas, to really kind of dive wholeheartedly into the seamlessness of being mindful, of being present, of sitting, walking. And in many ways it is a leap, because it's a leap that really takes us sometimes beyond our comfort zone. But then I think it is also so important to remember that this practice is actually not meant to console us. It is not intended, actually, to make our life comfortable. In fact, the practice is really intended in many ways to disturb us in wholesome and skillful ways, but to, to challenge many of our places where we, where we hold, where we cling, where we define our world by what we believe that we want and need or what is good for us. So we learn to be generous within all that, to take, to take that leap, to take the, the risk, to really, in a way, just surrender, to sit, walk, make your life in the most simple, the most extraordinary way. Now the other aspect which is really key and relates to generosity, which is really also a key ingredient in the collected mind, is of course sila, integrity. Because this is what protects the mind from guilt. But moreover, it is what brings joy and happiness. Cultivating ethics is really a direct way of releasing the heart from craving and aversion. Because this is what moves most unethical or disrespectful acts or thoughts or words. And integrity, you know, ethics is something, again, on so many levels. It's not just about observing, you know, five precepts or eight precepts. It's really about being aware of the state of our mind when we move into craving, when we move into aversion. And when we cultivate ethics, really there's a deeper motivation, which is to cultivate a mind which is at peace with the world, and which is fearless. When the Buddha talks about ethics, he really talks about it as being the m- deepest embodiment of loving-kindness, an attitude, a lo- and loving-kindness not just being a practice, But loving-kindness being an attitude of mind that underlies the whole of our practice. In fact, when the Buddha talked about ethics, he spoke about them as acts of loving-kindness, thoughts of loving-kindness, words of loving-kindness. Really turning the mind away, away from the tendencies to resist, to defend, to be aversive, to judge, to demand. And really what that does, that attitude of loving kindness, is it gives rise to a mind of happiness. And there's a very I think there's a very important line that is, is often overlooked in this teaching, where the Buddha said, in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. Now that often seems kind of Um, strange to us because we often have the idea that we practice in order to become happy and that if we practice enough then we will be happy but the Buddha actually talked about reversing that and really looking at what is needed, what is helpful to cultivate a mind of happiness out of which samadhi and wisdom can emerge now, dana and sila are big pieces of cultivating that mind of happiness. It's creating the ground for collectedness, for undistractedness, for samadhi to arise. Now, upon this ground of dana and sila, we bring the intention to pay attention. Again, on one level, that seems simple, not easy, but straightforward. But again, attention has has different aspects to it. The first one is interest. Interest is incredibly important. You know, without interest, our attention is most always going to be unwise attention. It's going to be forced. It's going to be, uh, you know, it's because I should be paying attention. Interest is what enlivens attention. So, to be interested in the breath, to be interested in seeing what is happening in the mind, to be interested in how we are and where we are, moment to moment, to be deeply interested in that. The other part of wise intention the first part is interest, and the second part is intention. Now, again, you you know there's there can be many ways that we have learned to pay attention in our life. You know, in school we may have been shouted at to pay attention or, you know, we may have had our own goals so we shouted ourselves to pay attention. Uh, attention can be quite sort of greedy and looking for results. And the, the intentions that we bring... To this practice, again, are really simple. Kindness, compassion, renunciation. Surrounding everything that we attend to our thoughts, our body, sounds, our walking, our sitting. Letting those in- intentions surround everything that we attend to. Kindness, compassion renunciation it's a way of simplifying and gathering the mind and developing uh, attention which is wise now a retreat is really dedicated to cultivating the conditions upon which wise attention can really grow and deepen and I was looking at, at some of the the kind of suggestions that are made for, uh, as, as kind of preliminary, almost preliminary practices for developing samadhi or wise attention. And one of those conditions is, and, and this is one of the things one of my first teachers said to me, is said to find a secluded place with long views. Well, here we have something of a secluded place. Uh, and invite the environment of a retreat is a secluded place not just geographical but also just the way a retreat is offered you know we don't do a lot of offering of entertainment you know this is about as good as it gets I'm afraid and um, we've let go of our schedules we've let go of a lot of our busyness we've simplified our sensory world just by the fact of coming here. So we have created something of a secluded place, externally and to some degree internally. But the secluded place is also our mindfulness, our practice, the way that we gather our attentiveness and focus just on where we are. Because we do see that we can be in a secluded place, but be very unsecluded. You know, you could be here in this environment, fairly secluded, and yet have a very unsecluded mind. You know, if we go through the day with our sense doors prowling, you know, reading the instructions on the fire extinguishers and the tea boxes, you know, browsing the library for hours on end, you know, and overly exaggerated interest in the notice board. You know, then we have a secluded place, but we have a very unsecluded mind. And really, secluding the mind is really letting go of a lot of that agitation and busyness, learning to simplify and particularly being aware of what we are doing at the sense doors. It is through the sense doors that we are kind of communicating our inner world as much as we're receiving the external world. So being mindful at the sense doors... Simplifying, collecting, being collected at the sensors. The long views we also have, we have this externally here. You know, it, that nature is a tremendous ally in this practice in terms of having this sense of long views, you know, being able to look out over the hills, to really be aware of the stillness of the trees, the, the vastness of the sky, the, really cultivating this sense of spaciousness and long views to bring that sense of appreciation of being touched. Those long views are really helpful in calming and collecting the mind. But the long views, again, is not just an external phenomenon. It also needs to be internal. Um, Long views is really having a sense of perspective on our practice. It's so easy to judge our practice by the experience of the moment. That was a good sitting. I'm probably always going to have good sittings. That was a bad sitting. I'm probably always going to have bad sittings. ins um, It's easy to judge ourselves by the contents of our mind of the moment. You know, I'm doing well, I'm doing terrible, I'm successful, I'm a failure, I'm good, I'm bad. We're defining ourselves by the contents of our mind. And this is a kind of sacrifice of long views. We do not know how long our path will be, and it is not linear. Calmness followed by storms, storms followed by serenity, thoughts of judgment followed by thoughts of of compassion, to have some long views, to be not prone, to seize upon either the experience of the moment or the contents of our mind of the moment and say, this is what I am, This is how my practice is. Expand that. Have that sense of perspective. We simply don't know. We are just here to be present with what is. We need the long views of what we're cultivating, what we are dedicated to. As the Buddha said, this path has only one direction and one outcome, and that is freedom. And everything that we do in our practice, through the wise intentions, through the wise attention, is really in the service of that outcome of freedom. As I was speaking about last night, learning to cultivate that taste of freedom. We cannot actually ever define our practice by one sitting or walking or one experience in our mind. Sometimes I think the only instruction I ever need to give on a retreat is simply to say, just show up. Just keep showing up. Begin again. Find the perseverance, the patience. Draw no conclusions. Have long views. The second of the prerequisites are the conditions that are said to be important for samadhi, uh, developing samadhi, the collected mind, is to be free of indebtedness, to be not in debt, not owing, not bound. In fact, just to give the most obvious example of that, if you owe someone a lot of money, you are indebted. And we know what being indebted does to our mind, to our life. You know, we worry about it, we're afraid, we're, we're anxious about the future. Our mind, our heart suddenly gets really contracted. And then suppose suddenly you're, you're, you find yourself in a position to pay off that debt. How would you feel? This tremendous sense of relief, tremendous sense of freedom, Now being free of indebtedness is not just material. It is also really being aware here on retreat of our emotional and psychological indebtedness. Now when we come to sit, it becomes clear and evident really right away what we are in debt to because that is what keeps pulling our attention. That's what keeps tugging our attention. That's the story, the loop that we keep repeating over and over again. That's what we think about a lot. It's what our mind dwells upon. And it is also emotional indebtedness has exactly the same effect as material indebtedness. It agitates our mind and it keeps tugging us towards past and future. So then, of course, the obvious question is, well, what what do you do with all of that? I mean, very few people come on a retreat and are free, completely free, of emotional or psychological indebtedness. And it's not to say that you shouldn't begin a retreat until you are free of that. If that was the case, most people would never, ever end up here. It's a reality in our life. We see the ways that our mind, our sense of being, Is tugged, is pulled, is tied to, you know, sometimes it's unresolved conflicts, sometimes it's questions about our lifestyle, sometimes it's it's, uh, loss that we aren't yet able to accept. Sometimes we're indebted to our demands about how we should be or how another person should be in our life. We can see what our mind dwells upon and thinks about. This is what we are in debt to, and this is actually what we're asked to embrace in our practice. I think it's become so obvious that it requires really some insight to have a collected and an undistracted mind. And the insight is into these areas of indebtedness. Now, freeing ourselves from indebtedness, again, is just not one-dimensional. Sometimes in our life, you know, we are indebted. You know, there's an argument that is unfinished, you know, a relationship that is broken. Sometimes it is outer acts of peacemaking that is required for us to be free from indebtedness. Sometimes it's forgiveness, acceptance, compassion. This is sometimes what is needed for us to be free from indebtedness. Sometimes it's an inner act of peacemaking, being aware that we don't always get what we want or feel that we need. And the acceptance of that is actually quite liberating. To be able to accept that people are not always who we want them to be, and yet it is only forgiveness or compassion that really liberates our heart from that indebtedness. It's an inner shift often, you know, being, because we can't resolve everything in our life and everything in the world. There is not an easy answer to everything. Sometimes being free from indebtedness is an inner shift. And I think it is really that we're willing to stop arguing with the way things are. That we're willing to put down our arguments with how things are in this moment. And that is actually really liberating. And I think it's so important to really sense uh, the taste of freedom and the joy and the happiness that is born of liberating ourselves from debt. We don't liberate ourselves from debt in order to make ourselves suffer. We do this in order to allow the mind really to be at ease. You know, and to do that, first we really need to see the painfulness of being in debt. You know, the painfulness of some of these loops that go round and round and round. The painfulness of some of these arguments that we keep having with ourselves or having with the world, just to see the simple suffering of it. If we can see the simple suffering of it, and not the story about that suffering... Because the story about that suffering is often what keeps us in debt. You know, you have to change, I have to change, you have to be different. The world has to be different. If we can let go of the story, we can at times just see the suffering of being indebted. Then we can sense a place of compassion. The wisdom of letting go. The wisdom of releasing ourselves from the arguments. And we start to find the calmness of that, the, the kindness of that. Now, samatha, or the collected mind, does not magically arise. I think we, we see in ourselves sometimes busyness, distractedness, agitation. It is a habit of the mind. It's a habit we have a lot of training in. You know, we may have been doing it for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, training ourselves in in the mind being agitated or busy. But this is actually where we practice calmness, not apart from busyness and agitation, but in the midst of it. We practice calming the body and calming the mind. In so many ways, we slow down, we calm the body, we pay attention to what our bodies are doing. We let go of this sense of of hurry, of rush, of haste, knowing it's a state of mind. As we begin to just calm the movements of the body, the mind begins quite naturally to begin to respond to that, to feel also a little more connected a little more present. But we also calm the busyness and agitation through not feeding them. You know, it's not as if busyness and agitation is somehow some sort of intrinsic to our mind or has a certain lifespan. The lifespan of busyness and agitation is according and related to the degree of feeding that we do. And we feed agitation and busyness through, through thought, through through uh, over involvement, through a kind of unwise interest, we we feed agitation and busyness through aversion and craving. So what we do in the practice is we learn to feed something else. We learn to feed calmness. We learn to feed steadiness. We learn to feed a certain tranquility. Now, in the, in the doing of that, the breath is really a great ally in these first days, learning to bring our breathing into the foreground of our attention, let in the thoughts, the busyness, don't argue with the thinking. Don't argue with the busyness. Just let them much more begin to sit in the background of your consciousness, the background of your attention. If you don't feed the agitation it will calm all by itself. You don't have to do really anything special at all. Being with the breathing is really a training in letting go because every time we come back to the breath, we're coming back from something. We're coming back from our obsessions, our loops, our preoccupations. We're training ourselves in letting go. And it's a training that is undertaken with kindness, Being with our breathing is to see ourselves reflected in the mirror of our breathing, seeing where we are indebted, what we dwell upon, how we construct our world of the moment. The Buddha talked about this so much, to calm the formations, calm the formations of thought, of habit and agitation. And learning to rest with kindness and ease in just one breath at a time. Cultivating that mindfulness of breathing is a way of really learning to integrate our body, mind, and present moment. Really cultivating a secluded place. Not disconnected from the world, but connected with the world of this moment. Cultivating the seclusion of contentment. This is also so important in our path. It's not easy. Because we see so often we're we're really feeling and experiencing this heart of lack. You know, something is missing, something is absent, seeking for something more. And contentment is truly the art of peace. Peace with what is. In harmony with the way things are. And the more present we are, we discover we are increasingly awake to all things. And that is really the heart of this practice. It's not about being a perfect breather, but to be awake, to be calm, to be collected. Establishing. So in these first days, what we do is we establish the ground for wakefulness. In dhāna, in sila, in samadhi, in cultivating a secluded place with long views, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. So, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful beginning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit